It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone. And Genesee Health Plan can help. I called and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, healthcare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to geneseehealthplan.org. We're in this together and together we'll get through it. From Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Nolade, Jordan, Antonio, Eddie, and the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, this is Wednesday, of course, which means Armchair Politics, our weekly uh, roundtable. Uh, is coming up uh, at the top of the next hour for the second and third hour of today's three-hour tour, focusing uh, with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, on uh, local, state, and national news and current events in our uh, weekly roundtable, plus some interesting quotes and, of course, the uh, X-Files. But uh, before we get to that... We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the economy and what's going on with the economy and some other uh, uh, news in the in the world of Wall Street with uh, e- economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. He joins me by phone. Chris, welcome back to the show. Hi, Tom. Great to be back. Um, let's start right off with uh, the what's going on with the transition and its impact. Um, what uh the transition has been a little bit tentative but uh yet um president elect biden has gone on with picking some of his cabinet members including for treasury secretary janet yellen what do you think of of that choice is is she confirmable is as has been reported she uh, pretty well liked on all sides of uh, the aisle yeah, I think she's a very well-respected economist in the profession. <clears throat> um, she has a lot of experience working in the public public sector. She was chair of the Federal Reserve District Bank in San Francisco. Then she became chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, uh, which is the Jerome Powell position, um, the old A.L. Greenspan position under President Obama. Um, there was talk that President Trump might reappoint her um, to that position, but he did for whatever reason. 
so I think there's a thinking that she's very well regarded in the profession as she's faced Senate confirmation before and that she had to be confirmed by the Senate to become chair of the Board of Governors. So I think it's viewed as both a respectable pick and a safe pick. And and how is the um, market reacting now as 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 the transition becomes a little bit more solid? Yeah, I don't know how much the market's reacting to the transition, uh, just because COVID is overwhelming everything else the market is reacting to. So I think a lot of the market rally, uh, the Dow crested thirty thousand for the first time fairly recently is being driven by the good news on the vaccine front. So we have, I believe, three vaccines that are more than 75% effective, which is very good news. Um, Pfizer's vaccine was just approved by the UK um, either yesterday or today, depending on the time change. So that's going to be distributed. Um, It's likely to be approved in the U.S. I don't know why the U.S. has to be behind everyone else for this. You think the FDA could get together and maybe move a little bit more quickly. Uh, but I think they meet on December 7th or 8th. I suspect they'll approve the vaccine, so doses will go out and vaccinations will start soon after that. So I think that's a big signal to the market that things might be returning to normal or some semblance of normal in 2021. And I think that's what's driving the market rally more than anything else. Although certainly um, some certainty with regards to what the incoming administration is looking like is going to help too. Uh, because like we've talked about before, the stock market really hates uncertainty and really likes certainty. How much of um, the way the market acts, how much of it is based on reaction versus uh, prediction? It's hard to give an exact breakdown, some combination of both. Um, I think the market probably is mostly reactive, I would say, but it's it reacts more quickly than everyone else. That when news is released, you'll see the market react instantaneously. And you saw that at betting markets on election night. Um, there were a couple of betting markets where people could place bets on who was going to win the presidential election. Uh, one betting market had President Trump at about a 30% chance to win re-election. And then as returns started coming in in Florida, uh, Georgia, and then North Carolina, where the president was overperforming the polls again, um, those betting markets shot way up to about um, 80% for the president to win. They moved just very rapidly in the course of minutes. And then when Arizona wasn't coming in for the president like the other states were, well, then the market dropped off very quickly. I would say the market is largely reactive, but it reacts very quickly probably more quickly than anyone else reacts. But in day-to-day operations, the market typically is um, gauging how things are likely to be going forward. That's certainly what a lot of investors are trying to do, is guess what's going to be happening in 2021 and adjust accordingly until some big event happens and then they become totally reactive. Yeah, I guess it depends, you know, typical economist answer, what you mean by reactive. So I think the market reacts to news, so it's reactive in that sense, but it's that news that forms the market expectations about the future. So when Pfizer came out with um, their news, I think it was the week 
after election day that their vaccine was more than 90 percent effective you know the market reacted to that you saw a big rally in the dow where the dow at one point rose by a thousand points so it was reactive in that sense but what the reaction was doing is changing market expectations about the future because now the market has news that they, hey there's potentially a vaccine on the horizon so that increases the expectation that 2021 is going to look pretty good compared to what we were thinking, say, a week ago. So the market reacts to news, and that news forms market expectations about the future. And we always turn to Wall Street um, to look at, at how um, the economy is moving and what direction the economy is, is moving in here in the U.S., but there are stock exchanges in all of the other countries, and with us being a uh, in a, in a global economy environment, how much does what's happening, say, in China or Japan or the UK, impact what happens on Wall Street? Yeah, it's interesting too that there are multiple stock exchanges even in the United States. Um, everyone talks about the Dow. But that's an index of really 30 companies or so. It's just that everyone kind of generalizes what's going on based on how the Dow moves, although people track the S&P 500 as well. There's also the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange. They tend to move in the same direction. Um, if you think about international stock exchanges, like over in Japan, it really depends on if the markets over there are reacting to news that will affect the United States as well, if they're to news that impacts the global economy, or if they're reacting to more, say, Japan-specific news. So if you're talking about something like the coronavirus, um, maybe back in January or February, if you see the Asian stock markets go down because of it, well, that might be a signal that, you know, hey, this virus is pretty bad. Um, we have to be on guard because if it reaches our shores, which it obviously did, well, then it could be pretty bad here too. So it just depends on whether the news foreign markets are reacting to will also impact the U.S. market or not. But given how globalized the economy is, um, it's often the case that foreign markets are reacting to events that will impact the U.S. economy as well. You know, a lot of um, people are talking about uh, uh, pandemic fatigue, and, and that's been at the heart of some of the challenges that uh, uh, health officials have had trying to get people to uh, socially distance and wear masks and, and so on, stay home, you know, as much as possible. And that's that's been difficult um, because of this, this idea that, that people are just tired of staying in, working from home, and, and these various measures. Um, it... it does the stock market react at all the same way with with fatigue from an issue? I don't think pandemic fatigue is really driving the market uh, because I agree there is pandemic fatigue right now because it just goes contrary to human nature to sit at home and not see friends or family. Well, we just saw that, that over the Thanksgiving holiday with... Um, planes and, and air travel being at its highest since, what, sometime in March. 
Right, and then you also have um, news stories where people like the California governor shut down bars and restaurants, and then um, just before that shutdown order is seen having a big gathering at the French Laundry, which is one of the fancier restaurants in California, um, with a group of two dozen people um, not social distancing and not wearing masks. So um, that's an example of pandemic fatigue, too. And I think that's one reason why there is pandemic fatigue, because some of our elected officials will give down these edicts about don't go to restaurants, don't travel, don't see friends or family. And then right after they do that, they're caught at like the French Laundry or the Denver mayor posts a tweet about how you shouldn't travel for Thanksgiving right before boarding a flight to go to Mississippi to see his family. Right. Just the double standard that elected officials are living, I think, really contributes to pandemic fatigue. We're we're seeing that a lot with the White House. CNN just uh, uh, itemized a a series of holiday gatherings that are going to be happening at the White House. And a lot of things, um, a lot of the behavior at the White House has been sort of against the grain with regard to what uh, health professionals are recommending and and they're predicting that a lot of these events will be the same way you know gatherings of you know at least tens of people if not hundreds um for various events the first lady just walked a bunch of volunteers through on a tour of uh, the various uh, holiday decorations and and how the White House is decked out for the holidays, um, and and that has an impact on people who are being told not to get together with their families and and not to to move house to house for holiday celebrations and so on. Yeah, I I, I agree. Although, like everything in the in the country now, things have to be split down the middle. So. I think it's a little bit different for the White House in the sense that they were never really on board with the social distancing, shut everything down. They were just kind of dragged, kicking and screaming towards it. So I think you could say that the White House is being less hypocritical about it, which does less damage to the case to shut everything down because they were never really on board with the first place. So if you have two sides, don't shut down versus shut down, well, the don't shut down side hasn't really changed their behavior. But the shutdown side, uh, where you see this behavior of people who shut everything down, they go to a restaurant or then hop on a plane, that really damages um, the case to shut everything down at social distance. And it kind of makes people think that um, this is the boy that cried wolf, you know, um, how how much credibility does the shutdown position have if the people advocating it uh, don't live by it? I think it's, um, not to get too off topic, but I think it's a problem both the climate change people have, right? This issue split down the middle. You could argue the white, that the White House doesn't really believe it. So if you see them hop on a private jet, you're like, well, that's to be expected. Right. But then when you see people who do believe the ch- climate change position hop on private jets or hop on huge diesel burning yachts, it's even you're worse. Like, that's right. You're kind of like, well, how how much do they really believe it? Hey, if they're living their life like they don't. Chris, we got to take a break here. Can you stand by for a few minutes and we'll talk some more? Sure. Sounds good. Great. My guest is economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. And uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Chris right after this. 
And now I dare everybody, it's me, Tigger, T-I-double-G-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica, and the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We're talking with uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. Uh, Chris, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back, Tom. Um did you see this uh, this new proposal from NASDAQ about requiring uh, diversity on boards of directors uh, on the companies uh, listed on the exchange? Yeah, I saw that. Um, there's been similar proposals from companies like Goldman Sachs where they've said, we won't do an initial public offering for a company unless I believe they have at least one female on the board, something like that. Yeah, um, I guess the uh, the rule, which subsequently has to be approved by the uh, SEC uh, in order to take effect, but it would require companies to have at least two diverse directors, including one woman and one member of an underrepresented minority group, which could include uh, people of color or LGBTQ+. Um, and uh, let's see, it says smaller companies and foreign companies on the exchange could comply with two women directors, um, and they'd be required to disclose transparent diversity statistics about their boards. And uh, if the if the rule passes, a company could have its shares delisted from the exchange if it doesn't comply. Um, is has NASDAQ ever imposed any guidelines like this in the past? I don't believe so. Um, it's hard to know how seriously to take these guidelines because with corporations in the modern U.S. economy, they seem to all have diversity requirements. So given that, I would be surprised if there are major corporations out there that don't have so-called diverse directors already. Um, there's also a, a lot of competition in terms of where a company could list its stock um, for ver- in various stock markets. So if that requirement ever became binding for a company, it would probably be easier for the company to just choose to list its stock on a competing stock market instead. So my suspicion is, is that this is just um, all for show for the NASDAQ for publicity um, rather than anything that has real teeth. We're into December already, and the year's about to wind up. Um, what what are some of the highlights from the the past year? Just kind of looking back over twenty twenty, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, I think <clears throat> everything is related to COVID in twenty twenty. It just drowns out everything else. But when you look at the economic data, it is just very striking how January and February, you go from a really strong economy. The economy wasn't perfect then. There's always issues with the economy when you're talking about 
a $21 trillion economy with 320 million people in it. Uh, but all things considered, the economy was pretty good in January and February. Unemployment is under 4%, and inflation wasn't a problem. Um, lots of economists thought that wasn't possible. If you think back to the old Phillips curve, if, it, if unemployment ever got too low, inflation was supposed to kick in. People believe that, well, maybe like 4.5% unemployment is the floor before inflation starts to, starts to kick in. Uh, but before... Before COVID, the U.S. economy got down to about 3.8% unemployment without inflation. So that was very remarkable. You had pretty solid job growth on the order of 150, 200,000 new jobs per month. Pretty decent economic growth on the order of you know two, two and a half percent a year. Uh, you know, the economy was doing very well. And then mid-March hits, and just in the course of a week or two, you go from arguably the best economy in the last call it 20 years, to the worst economy since the Great Depression. It's just there's never really been a situation in at least U.S. economic history where the economy has really turned on a dime like that. To go from 3.8% unemployment to nearly 15% unemployment, to have essentially 20 years worth of job gains wiped out in the course of a couple weeks, um, to go from 250,000 people or so filing for unemployment for the first time in a given week, because even when the economy is good, you know, people still file for unemployment, they get laid off, fired, what have you. So in normal economic times, maybe you get a quarter of a million people filing for unemployment in a given week. You know, that increases by basically a factor of, trying to do the math quickly in my head, a factor of four, where you go from 250 people filing for unemployment to nearly 7 million people filing for unemployment. I'm sorry, a factor of, what is that, 40? I mean, it's just off the scale. It's hard to contemplate a number that big. Um, even right now with the recovery, you still have more people filing for unemployment um, right now um, than you did at the worst part of the Great Recession 10 years ago. And that was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Um, yeah, there's been some impressive job growth numbers coming out every month. Um, it'll be interesting to look at what the job growth numbers for November are because those will be released this Friday. Um, October had something like 780,000 new jobs created, which sounds like a lot, and it is. Uh, but we still have 10 million fewer jobs now than we did back in February before COVID. If you just kind of project that out, you need a year's worth of job growth um, at the October rate just to get back to where we started from and then hopefully grow from there. So just the massive hole the economy fell into at the drop of a hat uh, back in March and early April, just almost impossible to wrap your head around. So I think from the economic front, that's the real story. And I think another story is too, which maybe is a little bit more political, is just the willingness of our elected officials to keep the economy shut down um, despite the massive amount of economic damage it's causing. Um, the, maybe the lack of pushback on the shutdown, too, I think is remarkable. Um, I thought back in March when the economy shut down, we would do like the 15 days to stop the spread. And then if the hospitals weren't overwhelmed, if you don't have the 40,000 people on ventilators, like what was predicted by some people, I thought the push to reopen would just be overwhelming just because the damage that the shutdown did. And there was a push for sure, but it wasn't overwhelming. And I thought that was very surprising as well. So for me, those are the highlights. Um, 
maybe lights, if you will, because 2020 was such bad economics. You know, I've done a little bit of, of comparing how um, how we've been trying to address this pandemic and comparing it to the Spanish flu uh, epidemic in uh, or pandemic in 1918, just a little over 100 years ago. Um, did the economy react the same way in 1918, 19, and 20? Um, as it has with this bout? It's hard to say because you had a lot of stuff going on during that time period. World War One, so being... Right, World War One, exactly, and then the end of the war, and the demobilization. So you do get a pretty deep recession in 2020, or, I'm sorry, 1920, 1921. Probably the Spanish flu contributed to some of that, but there is other things going on, too. But that recession was very short-lived. Um, the economy quickly rebounded that you have the roaring 20s until the Great Depression. Um, what I think is interesting, interesting about the Spanish flu is that as far as I could tell, there were never widespread shutdowns and stay-at-home orders. Um, oh, I've seen, I've, I've seen some. Um, news- right, I've seen those too, but that's for you know city-specific things like in yeah, uh, what was it? Philadelphia. You know, they closed down like bars and pool halls. Well, those are more targeted shutdowns. All the meeting, as far as I could well, the, the meeting places and some of the recommendations were very similar. You know, don't have more than ten people in a group. Stay home if you can. You know, those. A lot of the instructions were very similar. Right. I'm just saying there was a. a a blanket stay-at-home order back then, like there is now, where everything shuts down and people have to remain confined to their house homes. Maybe the economy doesn't just grind to a halt back then, like now. So I think that's what makes the comparison a little bit tougher. Um, I think what was surprising, too, is that, you know, pandemics are should have been a known threat to the government, like pandemics have been a thing throughout human history. You have the bubonic plague, of course, but then you have other plagues pop up too. Like there's the plague of Justinian um, during the Byzantine Empire days. That it's always hard to tell with like historical data that old, but that wipes out tens of thousands of people in in Constantinople. Um, you have Ebola more recently. We had the swine flu scare ten years ago. There's been other flu scares in the 1960s and the 1950s. So a pandemic should have been a known threat. And would we have arguably the most severe pandemic since the Spanish flu? And to find out that the government is very unprepared for it, essentially wasn't prepared at all, I think was very disconcerting. Um, And really all presidential administrations are to blame for that. Um, President Bush famously read a book about the Spanish flu on vacation, like I think in 2006, and thought that, you know, there's some sort of pandemic uh, preparation plan put in place, but apparently there wasn't. Uh, President Obama faced the swine flu early in his term, um, so he should have known about the threat, but it turned out that, like, the nation's stockpile of PPE was depleted and never replenished during that time, and then, you know, President Trump apparently did it. Um, prepared the nation for a, a, a potential pandemic either. So it's kind of like the one thing the government should be ready for, a pandemic that affects everyone, 
um, kind of like a classic role of government. Uh, just they just completely fail to do it, which I think is a real sad commentary about the effectiveness of the federal government. But yet, in um, in in the case of uh, SARS and swine flu, um, and and there have been one or two others, H one N one, those didn't seem to just roll over everything the way that uh, COVID nineteen has. Yeah, I think the argument would be with swine flu, we got lucky. And that I remember when swine flu broke, I think that's May or April of 2009, there was a lot of panic, um, a lot of sensational headlines on websites like the Drudge Report. Uh, but I, we got lucky in the sense that it turned out to be very mild. It was a mild case of the flu. Um, if, if it would have went the other way, um, you know, things could have turned out very differently. Arguably with SARS, we kind of got lucky on that, too, in that it just seemed to go away before spreading out a global scale. Um, avian flu has always been a concern, which seems to be a nasty flu, flu strain in China. Uh, but we've got lucky in that it's never mutated to make the jump from chickens to humans. Um, MERS is a coronavirus, um, predominantly in the Middle East, I think, which has a high fatality rate. But we've got lucky that it doesn't really seem to spread easily human to human. Maybe because it has such a high fatality rate, um, the host dies before he has a chance to spread it to others. So I think there's an argument to be made that, well, we've just gotten real lucky and that the pandemics we've had so far have it turned out to be bad. And maybe that's why the federal government was complacent. What do you think is... Uh... What are the things that we should be watching going forward into 2021? Is it is it all sort of hanging by by how quickly uh, vaccines can be distributed and and uh, given to people? Yeah, I think so. To um, this month, to watch out for the Pfizer vaccine. Assuming it's approved by the FDA this month, um, it looks like steps are already being taken to distribute the vaccine um, with the anticipation that it's approved, so doses could be administered immediately. Um, I read an article this past week about how United Airlines is flying charter flights to disperse the vaccine across the country. So once the FDA gives the green light, um, the vaccinations can start immediately. And I think it's very irresponsible at the F- of the FDA's part to not approve the Pfizer vaccine as quickly as the British um, did. You know, there's no reason to delay where uh, the economic recovery, people's livelihoods really depend on um, the vaccine being administered and life being able to return to normal. Uh, but there's been a lot of criti- criticism about the FDA and over its history in, in terms of how slow it is to approve new treatments. It seems to be much slower than the Europeans, for instance, and failing to approve a safe treatment um, results in hardship, just like approving an unsafe treatment does. And I think this is just an example of that. I'm, again, uh, there's just no possible explanation for why it should take the FDA longer than the British Approve, yeah, approve the approval in the UK, I, I think Boris Yelp, uh, I almost yeah, Johnson. said Johnson. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. yeah I, the, the names are so similar. Um, but uh, Boris Johnson um, was uh, saying that um, 
vaccines would be available within days for people in right. the UK. Yes, and, my point is if the British could do it, why can't we? So I think this, what this pandemic has done is really laid bare how ineffectual our federal government is on things we would expect from a government. But we kind of already knew that, I think. You know, if you fly, the airports are kind of a disaster. Um, TSA is kind of a disaster. There's delays because their traffic control system is so antiquated. Your nationwide um, infrastructure is aging. Our interstate highway system is aging and congested. So we already kind of do. The federal government isn't really good at doing what it's really designed to do. And I think the pandemic response really lays that there. So, yeah, I think the vaccine is going to drive a lot of what happens in 2021. So watch for the FDA approval this month and then how widely um, the vaccine could be distributed and then administered. And another thing to watch, too, are their side effects from the vaccine. You know, we have of you know, course. clinical trials where we're talking, you know, three, 4,000 people, but is that a representative sample of the U.S. or not? Don't they uh, typically shoot for something more like 30,000 when they're um, doing these kinds of uh, tests? Yeah, I thought I read 4,000. I, maybe I missed a zero. That's a possibility. But like anything, you never no, know. No, I, I, I mean... Um, you know, this has been, you know, Operation Warp Speed or whatever you want to call it. And there have been some some things that have been scaled back a little bit to try and do it more quickly. And what I was saying is, don't they typically rely on uh, testing of about 30,000 people before they uh, approve a drug? Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned that they did these tests with like 3,000 you know, there's a possibility that they went for fewer people just to speed things up. Right. But, you know, 30,000 versus 3,000 is always a question of, when you go from that number to 300 million, do things port over exactly or are there wrinkles? I think one wrinkle could be is that this vaccine is reported to have kind of a nasty side effect, nothing life-threatening as far as I could tell, but I see it described as, a bad hangover that lasts for 24 hours. So I think people have to be prepared for that as well. Um, and I think that information has to get out there because if you go through the first round of vaccinations that people are reporting you know, really bad side effects, well, that's going to make it less likely that people will go out and get a vaccine, right? Who wants to go to get a vaccine if you're going to be hungover for 24 hours? But if the deal is it goes away after 24 hours and if you get vaccinated, your life gets to go back to normal. I think that's a deal that people will take. So I think and, communication is going to be very important for the vaccine and, and as well. How, how quickly uh, will things get back to normal, or is there going to be a new normal? Yeah, that's always hard to say. Uh, I think it depends on how effective the vaccine is and how many people get it. I think... If the vaccine is effective and widely taken up, I think there's going to be a big push for life to go back to normal. Um, in terms of a new normal, I think after every recession, especially very deep recessions, you see permanent changes in the economy, not by design, just because people's habits change as a result of the economic recession. So 
what's that new normal look like? Well, it's hard to say, although you could speculate. Uh, one speculation I would make is that uh, work from home is going to be with us in some form more than what it was a year ago. Uh, because people who work in big cities before the pandemic, you know, you would live in, say, the Chicago suburbs, or if you're working in Los Angeles, you live in Orange County, and you just have a hellacious commute twice a day, five days a week, or it might take you two hours to get to work, um, even though you only live maybe 30 or 40 miles from work, and just bumper, bumper traffic. Well, the pandemic showed that at least some of that work could be done at home, so how likely are people going to be to hop back in traffic and go back to their daily commute where it could be argued that they don't have to? What does that do to the infrastructure that, you know, are we going to see uh, uh, office parks become little uh, little ghost towns? Yeah, I don't know. Um, we're just at uncharted territory, so there's an argument that maybe they do. Or maybe downtowns become a lot less populated than before. You know, skyscrapers in cities like Chicago and Manhattan become proverbial ghost towns. And then all the restaurants and coffee shops and bars that sprung up to people who work in skyscrapers uh, become ghost towns as well. And then you start thinking about what's that do to the person who owns the skyscraper, the bank that lent money to the person to buy the skyscraper. Well, they're going to be in a tough spot, too. So in that sense, perhaps big city infrastructure becomes a little less utilized. Um, but on the flip side, if you think that uh, climate change is a problem, burning gasoline is a problem, well, fewer people on the road because fewer people are commuting, well, that's going to help um, reduce carbon emissions and help uh, mitigate global warming. So that's a potential benefit. Um, but then you start thinking about big city finances, well, those worked great even before the pandemic. Um, Chicago famously had terrible uh, finances. Their unfunded pension liabilities were something like $20 billion that they didn't know how to come up with even before COVID, where they would just steadily raise parking um, fees, steadily raise property taxes to try to bridge that gap. Well, if people aren't eager to return to downtown Chicago to work, well, that's going to make Chicago's finances that much worse. Um, New York City is at a similar predicament. Um, the New York City subway systems at a similar predicament that they had huge financial problems even before the pandemic. Well, if you get fewer people riding the subway because fewer people are working in Manhattan, that's going to be a massive hole for the New York MTA, uh, which is the corporation that owns the subway, public corporation that owns the subway to dig out of. Yeah, I've already but seen a couple of uh, news stories about. Uh, some municipalities trying to change state law to allow for uh, charging income tax on people who live outside the city that were commuting in but won't be going forward. Yeah, I don't know how that how that could work out. Um, maybe there's a way to do it, but I think that would be really unprecedented for someone who's not in the city to be paying income taxes anyway. So the income taxes would have to be based on where is the business you work for headquartered. You know, that would be unprecedented. You know, another new normal might be um, the business travel return. Uh, because we've been doing business meetings via Zoom for the last year, 
how is that working out? How is it not working out? It's hard to say because I'm not one who did a lot of business traveling before that pandemic, but it seems to be working out for corporations. They Chris, might just say, well, let's do this now. Chris, I've got to take a break here. Can you stick around? Hi, this yeah. is Joe Byer right, from the we'll be right Alliance, back. and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings to you wherever you are. Good tidings for Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, Check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, Photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. 
America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsodent flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. Happy Holidays! From... And the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Going to wrap up uh, our conversation today with uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. Chris, welcome back. I, I kind of had to cut you off there uh, to go to break, but uh, welcome back. And, and you want to pick up where we left off? Yeah, we were just talking about what the new normal might look like um, after COVID is behind us. And I was thinking of, I think, talking about how business travel might permanently change um, even after COVID. And that corporations, businesses have been conducting business meetings on Zoom for the last month. You know, maybe that's working out okay for them and they might decide, hey, even when things go back to normal, Let's continue to do as many business meetings on Zoom as possible just to save on costly business travel. If that's what happens, that is really going to up the travel industry, um, in particular the airlines and big hotel chains that are located at high rises in major American cities. So, for instance, uh, business travel is something like 10%, 10% of air travel. So, so a small fraction of air travel, but it represents something like 70% of an airline's profits because business travelers book expensive last-minute plane tickets. They book expensive first-class tickets. So if business travel goes away or if it's substantially reduced, that's going to represent permanent financial hardship for the airlines. And I would expect there to be contraction in the airline industry in terms of airlines merging. Um, that's happened really after every recession. Um, it happened after 2001 and the 2008-9 recession. Um, airlines merged with other ones, so that would probably happen again. Um, and you see reduced routes. You see cities lose their hub status, for instance. You know, that happened after the most recent wave of airline consolidation, after the 08-09 recession, in particular where Delta merged with Northwest, um, some old Northwest hubs like in Memphis. Uh, disappeared. So that's a real possibility that air travel gets permanently reduced um, as a result of the pandemic. Um, so that's a, a potential downside because that industry supports a lot of jobs. Although if you worry about climate change, um, you would probably be happy with there being reduced air travel um, after COVID. Um, I think air travel would get more expensive too because um, airlines use business travelers to subsidize leisure travelers who are more price sensitive at bargain hunt for fares. So if there's fewer business travelers, 
well, the cost of getting the plane in the air is the same as before, so that cost now gets dispersed across leisure leisure travelers. So buying a plane ticket to go to Florida might get more expensive as a result. Um, think about big hotel chains, you know, like the Marriott of the world who have these massive hotels in major American cities. Well, if there are fewer business travelers, well, there's probably going to be fewer of those hotels as well. So I think a new normal might be, well, there's just going to be less travel in general as a result, less travel infrastructure. Do you think that, um, that, that tourism will bounce right back? Is the number of people that we saw traveling over the holiday weekend, um, provide any kind of a, a predictor with uh, all of the travel that took place despite uh, cautions to not travel? I think that's something that cuts both ways. Um, on the one hand, uh, the travel you saw over Thanksgiving was for people going to visit family. So it seems like people are confident to get out of the airplane, and that cuts both ways, too, not to give you the classic economist answer that it's 10 or that it's twice. That's exactly what um, I was just thinking, Chris. <laughs> so when you look at air travel, uh, people are getting on planes, but you have airlines like Delta that are still blocking off the middle, the middle seat on all the roads. So I think that helps people be confident in that they can have at least some social distancing out of the airplane. But the problem is, is that you can't imagine that the airline could be profitable doing that over the long term. And at some point, you know, the airlines will have to reopen the middle seat and pack planes to the gills like they were before COVID in right. order to be profitable. So it's hard to know how consumers will react to that. Um, maybe airlines can hold off on doing that until the vaccine is distributed. And if consumers are confident about the vaccine, they'll be willing to get on a packed airplane just like before COVID. Um, but people are traveling to see family, so you know they're landing and either going to a hotel, going to an Airbnb, or maybe staying with family directly. You know That's a much different animal than, say, traveling to go to Disney World. And how likely will people be to travel to Disney World in the near future and just be shoulder to shoulder with everyone else like before COVID? Right. Right. Well, we, yeah. we've got to end it there, but we should know but by the next time you're on, which will be just into the new year, we should uh, at least know where we are with uh, vaccines and maybe we can uh, uh, get a better sense of how long before things are back to normal. Chris, thanks so much for spending this time with, with uh, me this morning. Oh, you're welcome. And since I won't see you until 2021 or talk to you until then, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I look forward to talking to you um, in January. Thanks, Chris, and same to you. Take care. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Good evening and welcome to the Money Program. Tonight on the Money Program, we're going to look at money. Lots of it on film and in the studio. Some of it in nice piles, others in lovely clanky bits of loose change. Some of it neatly counted into fat little hundreds, delicate fivers stuffed into bulging wallets, nice crisp clean checks, pert pieces of copper coinage thrust deep into trouser pockets, romantic foreign money rolling against the thigh with rough familiarity, beautiful wayward calicute banknotes, filigree copper plating cheek by jowl with tumbling hexagonal milled edges rubbing gently against the terse leather of beautifully balanced bank books. 
sorry. But I love money. All money. I've always wanted money. To handle. To touch. The smell of the rainwashed florin. The lure of the lira. The glitter and the glory of the guinea. The romance of the ruble. The feel of the franc. The heel of the Deutschmark. The cold antiseptic sting of the Swiss franc. And the sunburnt splendor of the Australian dollar. I've got... Ninety thousand pounds in my pyjamas. I've got forty thousand French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. story for you. Once upon a holiday time, a very nice lady wanted to give some money to a charity that she thought was doing good things in her community. While the very nice lady was thinking about what charity to give to, a very bad man was planning to trick her by pretending to be a good guy, but he was actually stealing her money. What a bad guy, right? But the very nice lady was also a very smart lady, and she knew that my office has a whole team of people ready to go after the bad guys. Now, this very nice and very smart lady also did her homework. So when the bad guy called her and said he was from Acme Charitable Foundation, she asked him some very important questions. Questions that everyone who is donating to a charity this holiday season should ask. First, she asked the bad guy for the name, address, and phone number of the Acme Charitable Foundation so she could look it up to make sure it was real. Yeah, it is a legitimate charity. Nunchucks for Ducks teaches martial arts to needy ducks. Next, the very nice and smart lady asked him for the Acme Charitable Foundation's nonprofit registration number to make sure it was registered by my department to ask for donations. What's my registration number? It's uh, 8675309 for W0. Then she asked how much of her donation would actually be used by the Acme Charitable Foundation to do what it's supposed to do. Next, because she's smart, the very nice lady asked if her donation was tax deductible. And finally, she told him she would do her homework by visiting her connection to consumer protection, michigan.gov ag, or call our charitable trust section. And if the Acme Charitable Foundation checked out, she would donate online using a credit card. And the bad guy hung up because he knew she was a very smart lady and would not be tricking her this holiday season. 
So, kids, the moral of this story is this. While there are lots of people in need this holiday season, and it's important to give, make sure your money goes to the right place. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. You pilots, get off my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.